chapter 9, Resurrection. Okay, so we didn't quite make it to the explanation of Easter in the last chapter. Easter is the time of year when Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the central point of our faith. So let's take a deep dive into Easter and why it's so meaningful to us. Remember how Jesus had rock star status when he entered Jerusalem and was crucified within the course of a week? Uh, within that week, a lot of majorly important events in Jesus' life took place. The Last Supper, for instance, was one such event, and you've probably seen Leonardo da Vinci's painting of it at one point or another. Another major event was Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Knowing what laid ahead of him and the suffering he would undergo, Jesus prayed in the garden to God, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done, Luke 22:42. Jesus was also betrayed that week by Judas, who helped the Jewish leaders arrest Jesus and hand him over to Pontius Pilate. And then, of course, Jesus was beaten, mocked, spat upon, had a crown of thorns placed on his head, and was crucified. All of this happened in one week's time, and we're going to pick up in the Bible after the events I just mentioned. Jesus' burial. I want you to imagine Jesus on the cross. The Roman soldiers have pierced his side, his blood has flown out, and Jesus' lifeless body hung on the cross. On each side of Jesus were thieves who were also crucified, both of whom have died at this point as well. All the suffering is over. We're going to read from Luke 23 and John 20 to learn what Jesus did, what happened, and what the implications are for our lives. Let's start with Luke 23, 50 through 54. There was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and laid it in the tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been lain. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate because the Roman government oversaw the crucifixion. Joseph couldn't just go get Jesus, so he secured permission from Pilate. Joseph knew a guy named Nicodemus who helped him take Jesus' body down from the cross, and they prepared it for burial. Per ancient Jewish tradition, they wrapped his body in linen cloth, taking special care to wrap the head separately, and they placed his body in a tomb. Back then, a tomb was either a cave or a space carved out of rock. In Jesus' case, he was placed inside the unused tomb of a rich man, which fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 53.9. Joseph and Nicodemus laid his body inside the tomb, and then they surrounded and packed his body with spices to offset the decomposition process and odors that would inevitably emit from it. Finally, they rolled a huge stone in front of the tomb. This was the standard burial for many people, and that was how Joseph and Nicodemus buried Jesus too on lockdown. The Romans and Jewish leaders were freaking out that the disciples might go to Jesus' tomb, take his body, and say, look, he rose again from the dead. Their solution to this fear was to seal the tomb by rolling a stone in front of it, and that was an unusual thing to do. Think of how an ancient government official, like a king or a governor, would use hot wax to seal his letters and then imprint the wax with a ring to communicate it shouldn't be tampered with because it's official government business. For the Romans and Jewish leaders to seal the tomb sent a similar message, Matthew 27:66. In addition to the seal, Roman guards were placed in front of Jesus' tomb. Nobody was going to sneak around them and roll a huge rock away and go unnoticed. 
Jesus' tomb was on lockdown, mostly because of the rumors he would rise from the dead, and the Romans didn't want anyone messing around. Then in Luke 23:55, two women who had traveled to Jerusalem from Galilee with Jesus followed Joseph, saw the tomb, and watched as his body was laid inside the tomb, after the ladies went home to prepare spices and perfume. Then, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, these same women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. He said that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of the sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them, who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe them because their words seemed like nonsense, Luke 24, 1-11. Now flip to John chapter 20. The women told the apostles that Jesus had risen from the dead, and the apostles were like, uh, yeah, that's a little hard to believe. So, Peter and John, who wrote the book of John in the Bible, ran to the tomb. As scripture records, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, John 24. It's hilarious to me that John wrote this book of the Bible and made sure he included that detail, I smoked you, Peter. It's in the Bible. No one will ever forget it. The Upper Room John reached the tomb first and saw the strips of linen lying on the ground, but he didn't go inside. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, went straight into the tomb, and saw the strips of linen as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying separately from the linen. Finally, John, who reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw, and he believed. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? In the ancient world, woman was an endearing term. Think of it like mother or sister. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not take hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told him that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, John 26 through 19. Let's unpack that last piece of scripture. The disciples were inside what we call the upper room. 
This was simply a large room on the second story of a building where they were staying while everything calmed down around Jerusalem after Jesus' crucifixion. Three days prior, Jesus was on the cross for having preached and taught the things he did, so the disciples were understandably scared the same fate may fall upon them, so they locked the doors. I love Luke's account of Jesus' appearance, in which the Bible reads, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them, 2436. Jesus just came through the door despite it having been locked and said, Peace be with you. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible continues in verse 37, The whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost, which I think is hilarious. There they were, all squeezed and tight inside the upper room, and then Jesus walked in and said, Peace be with you, and they freaked out. If I were Jesus, I would have done this type of thing all the time just to mess with people. Anyway, Jesus proceeded to show them the marks where his hands inside had been pierced during the crucifixion, and the disciples were overjoyed to see the Lord again. Once more, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, John 20, 21. Huge, huge deal, right? Jesus had been hanging out with the disciples before his death, talking about his future resurrection, but the Bible says the disciples hadn't totally understood what all of it meant. He told them well before his crucifixion that he was going to lay down his life and take it up again. He said things like, the temple will be torn down and rebuilt in three days, John 2.19. Jesus was not referring to an actual building, he was referring to his own body. Until the resurrection happened, the disciples hadn't really done the math. So when Jesus appeared in the upper room, it was almost as if he was there to say, Listen guys, I'm not speaking metaphorically. My resurrection is not an allegory of the rebirth of something. I literally meant everything I said. Here's a fancy phrase you can impress your friends with, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This phrase explains that Christ's followers agree with the eyewitnesses from the Bible who said Jesus physically came back to life. Jesus Christ's body was resurrected. We do not believe it was the concept of Jesus or the theory of Jesus or the teachings or cause of Jesus that came back to life. We believe he physically died, was put inside the tomb, and physically rose again. Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of the Christian faith. Before the Bible, before the church, before our beliefs and teachings, before all of that stuff, we believe Jesus is God because he rose from the dead. No other human has done that. Jesus laid his life down and literally took it back up again. That's why Christians worship him as God. Everything is tied to Jesus. Other human beings have done incredible, noteworthy, good things. There are the George Washingtons, Abraham Lincolns, Martin Luther Kings, and Mother Teresas of the world. These are examples of important figures who served as moral leaders. They lived and died for their causes, so we have built monuments and carved out granite in recognition of them because they deserve it. If we were ever to celebrate a human being, these would be the people to celebrate. Their impacts were significant, but they didn't rise from the dead. It's not just that Jesus laid his life down. Countless people have done that. It's not just his goodness. Good people are everywhere. It's not Jesus' teachings. Many people's teachings reflect Jesus. What separates Jesus is the resurrection. Everything we do is tied to Jesus. We read the Bible and think Jesus said it, so these are the words of God. We attend church because Jesus started the church, and the resurrection demonstrated Jesus is God. So we follow him, and whatever Jesus says goes. The resurrection is massively important to Christians. It's not simply a thing, it's the thing.
Without it, our whole belief system breaks down. Without the resurrection, Jesus is on par with every other one of these remarkable human beings. Jesus' resurrection from the dead by his own power demonstrated that he has all power and authority over life and nature. His authority was a threat to all human authority. The Romans knew that if Jesus rose from the dead, his power was far greater than theirs. The Jews also realized this truth. His resurrection would mean he was indeed the Messiah, and their control over their devoted Jewish followers would be lost. Even in the modern world, it's no coincidence when totalitarian governments persecute Christians. I'm thinking of the Soviet Union, the Chinese government, and many of the Middle Eastern governments, for example. They all realize that if Jesus is indeed God, his followers will yield to his truth and direction before theirs. Faith in Jesus is why 10 of those 11 disciples would eventually die. They refused to recant their statements that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. The governmental authorities wanted to discredit them and their testimony in a desperate attempt to preserve their power. Even Jesus' brother James was martyred because he would not recant his belief in Jesus' resurrection. The Bible tells us that over 500 other eyewitnesses saw Jesus die and then interacted with him after his resurrection. If we brought the case of Jesus' bodily resurrection to court today with 500 eyewitnesses, we would win that case. Paul. One of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time was a guy named Paul. Paul was one of the people who Jesus appeared to after he died. Mind you, Paul was no pro-Jesus kind of guy before the resurrection. In fact, Paul was extremely and publicly opposed to Jesus. No joke, his full-time job was to find and kill Christians. There's even a famous account recorded in the Bible where Paul oversaw the stoning to death of a man named Stephen, which means they threw rocks at him until he died. Just imagine dying that way, and Paul was in charge of it. I don't know how you apply for that job, or what skills you need, or if there were benefits, but maybe when they offered him dental insurance, Paul said, I'm in. When Paul interacted with Jesus after he rose from the dead, he went from one of Jesus' greatest opponents to his greatest proponent. It was Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. Let that sink in. He was the one who highlighted the importance of the resurrection. Let me show you where he wrote about this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I have preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. In essence, Paul said the resurrection is of critical importance before the importance of the Bible or my teachings about the church, marriage, or sound doctrine and good theology. Further, Paul's writings teach that the Christian faith doesn't work without a foundation, and he wrote that there are basically three parts to that foundation that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead. Part 1, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. That's a huge one. Jesus didn't just die, he died for our sins. Remember what we learned way back in chapter 2, which was that our natural inclination is to sin. That is, when we are left to ourselves and given the option, human beings tend to do what's wrong. The Bible says sin is a rebellion and rejection of God, and sin separates us from God because He is perfect and our sin makes us imperfect. That's a tough pill to swallow. It's hard for most of us to think of ourselves that way. We want to think, I'm a good person, Jeff. And I bet you are. We all tend to be good people. 
Here's the problem. God's standard isn't good. His standard is perfection, so good falls short of perfect. Even if we're good, we're still imperfect. God is perfect, and perfection and imperfection cannot coexist. The only perfect person is and was Jesus. Jesus stepped out of heaven, was born of a virgin, which is the celebration of Christmas, and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never dropped an F-bomb, had a dirty thought, or acted selfishly. That's why he was the only one who could take our place and forgive us of our sin. Because he's perfect, he could pay a debt he didn't owe, a debt of yours and mine that we can't pay because we can never be perfect. That's why Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus was not murdered, he was not executed, he was not caught up in a political mess, and he didn't commit suicide. He heroically sacrificed his life for us. He was a Marine who jumped on a grenade to save his buddies. He was the firefighter who rushed up the stairs of the Twin Towers on 9-11. The difference is what Jesus did wasn't just for a few facing a harrowing moment on a battlefield or during a heartbreaking moment in our nation's history. It was for all mankind and for all eternity. He died for you. Part 2. Jesus was buried. The second piece of Paul's foundation is that Jesus was buried. This is important because a rumor has persisted since Jesus' death that maybe he was just unconscious and never really died like he had a concussion or something. People have tried to disprove the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the moment it happened. But the Apostle Paul confirmed he was dead. Jesus' mom thought he was dead. The disciples, the Romans, and the Jews thought he was dead. Joseph and Nicodemus, who removed his body from the cross, said he was dead, and the women who made his burial spices said he was dead. Millennia have passed, and skeptics still posit that Jesus didn't actually die, but no one has been able to rationally prove it. He was a dead person when he was buried. Part 3. He Rose Again Jesus rose again on the third day after his crucifixion. Many heroic people have sacrificed their lives and were buried. We visit their graves and we remember them as we should. That's an appropriate thing to do. But only one person ever got up again by his own authority, and that person is Jesus Christ. His resurrection is foundational to the gospel. Paul's writing continued, and he insisted that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of his brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians 15.6. This writing of Paul's was a letter to one of the early churches, and he was telling them, look, a lot of these 500 people are still alive. Go ask them about it. They saw the whole thing, and they'll be witnesses for it. Paul's letter goes on. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. But if it is preached that Christ is raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith, 1 Corinthians 15, 7-8 and 12-14. If you ignore or disregard the resurrection, then according to Paul, everything Christians say and do is useless. All the ways in which we place our hope in Jesus or in an afterlife are useless because without the resurrection, Jesus is simply another noble person who died, and that's it. But if Christ indeed rose again from the dead, then it's all legit. He is the Messiah. Paul's letter puts us in an uncomfortable position where we have to either take it or leave it. Either the resurrection happened and we believe it and trust it, or it didn't happen so it's all lies and foolishness. If that were the case, Paul wrote that our witness would be false and our foolishness should be pitied. 
deciding what I believe on a soccer field in Philadelphia. I didn't become a Christ follower until I was a junior in college, somewhere around the age of 19 or 20 years old. I was raised in the church, but it was not a healthy church. My parents were faithful and sincere, so I had good examples in my mom and dad. They sent me to a religious school that I eventually graduated from, so I knew the Bible pretty well, but I didn't care about it. I wasn't following it or living by it. Then one night in college, I had a conversation about faith with friends. We were sitting in the middle of a soccer field in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, late into the night, and I was trying to decide whether I believed this stuff or not. I started weighing my options because that's how my brain works. I thought, either he rose from the dead and he's God, or this is all fake. However, if he's God, I'd better start responding to him differently. But if this is all foolish fairy tale nonsense, I should reject it completely. I had to come to grips with my own beliefs because I was in and out of church, but not moving in a direction that was defining me. Then I thought, okay, if I removed God from my life, then he's just another good guy who died. Then what would I live for? Then I thought, okay, if I removed God from my life, then he's just another good guy who died. Then what would I live for? I suppose I would try to get the most out of life as I possibly could kind of a YOLO you only live once approach. I would try to make money so I could do whatever I wanted. I knew people who were like that, people who had money and could chase whatever they wanted. But then I thought, well, those people never really seemed happy. They were even kind of self-centered and egotistical. Maybe they liked to show off their money because it was all they had. They had lots of sex, but they had no relationships. I remember being a kid and seeing some 50-year-old guy trying to act like he was 22. It creeped me out then, and my feelings about that hadn't changed. I thought, well, I don't want that. That's not appealing to me at all. I thought back to the examples of my mom and dad who believed in Jesus and let him define and direct their lives. My dad worked in a factory, so we didn't have a ton of money, but we got by just fine. My mom and dad were happy people who enjoyed being generous. They had deep friendships with people who were like second parents to me. They were loved by others, and they loved one another. They were married for 52 years before they passed away. That life looked better to me. I thought about Paul's words about futile prayer that night. If there's no prayer, then there's nobody to reach out to, in which case I guess I am the end of the line. I wouldn't bank on me if I was me. I know myself. I can't break a bad habit, let alone change somebody's life. It was suddenly clear that the idea of a higher power and a God who heard me and loved me was important to me. All these wonderful things like a God who knows me, loves me, and has intentions for me disappear if there's no truth in Christ's resurrection. Back on that field in Pennsylvania, I came to a decision. Remember what we said about faith in chapter 3? Faith is the choice to believe in what you cannot and will not ever fully understand. If you said, Jeff, prove to me there's a God, I would show you libraries of evidence. But if you cornered me and said, sure, you can prove Jesus existed, everybody agrees with that. You can prove Jesus died and he was buried. People agree with those things too. But to believe Jesus is God is an act of faith. I would tell you, you're right. I have chosen to believe in what I cannot and do not fully understand. Prove to me there isn't a God. And you would show me some evidence that compels you to believe there is no God. And we would run around in circles before I would say, you choose by faith to accept there is no God. If you were intellectually honest, you would have to look at me and say, yeah, you're right. 
I choose to place my faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. I choose to believe, like his mother, that Jesus was God. I choose to believe, like his brother, James, that Jesus was God. I choose to believe, like his friends, that Jesus was God. All of these people believed he was God, and they gave their lives for that belief. When Jesus died, an earthquake shook the ground, and an eclipse took place. The Roman guards, who were the very men who executed Jesus, stood there looking at his body and said, Surely he was the Son of God, Matthew 27:54. I choose to agree with the guys who killed him. They all believed in him, and I decided that I do too because the idea of leading a life devoid of God is just not how I want to live. The Ramifications my choice to believe in Jesus' bodily resurrection comes with enormous ramifications. It means my life is not my own. It means I must act on everything Jesus said about sin and forgiveness. It means that he will give me everything he promised. But if I choose to believe that he is God, then I choose to follow him as the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus straight up rose from the dead. It's recorded all over the place in history, but in many ways that doesn't matter unless you believe it happened. It's your decision. Growing up, I had all the information, but I didn't believe it until I chose to put my faith in Christ. Paul went on to write another letter that would be included in the Bible as the book of Romans, and in it he said, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 10.9 I'm not looking to Jesus as merely my role model, I am accepting him as my God. When I worship him and ask for and receive forgiveness of my sin, then my soul is put into his care and I follow him. I believe this with all my heart. What about you? What are your beliefs about the resurrection? Do you believe Jesus was God? And if he was God, what are the ramifications for your life? For some of us, we have believed Jesus was God for so long, but it's become almost like an echo from the past. When we think about our relationship with God, it's something that we remember instead of something we participate in. Someone hears me when I pray, I'm here on purpose. All of this is because Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again in three days. That's the celebration of Easter. Headspace. Connect with God. I often define faith as choosing to believe in something I cannot and will never fully understand. At the very heart of the Christian faith is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, not his philosophy or his idea or simply his spirit, but that he rose again from the dead physically and spiritually. The ultimate act of faith is to believe that Christ is God, and that fact is in part proven by his ability to raise himself from the dead. Maybe spend a minute and ask God to help you have faith in this very critical area. In our normal way of thinking, this, of course, is impossible or even a fairy tale. But if there truly is a God in Jesus is who he says he is, then perhaps the God who is powerful enough to raise himself from the dead is powerful enough to give you faith. Connect with others. This would be a great conversation to have with someone who has been a follower of Christ for a while. There are some great resources in the form of books, articles, and podcasts that may help you think through the resurrection of Jesus, or what we often call the Easter narrative on different levels in different ways. Maybe this would be a great time to connect with a trusted friend who is a Christ follower, trusted pastor, or spiritual leader who could engage in this conversation with you on a deeper level. What does this mean for you? 
Ultimately, faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ is the focal point of our salvation. We believe that Jesus is God and is powerful enough to forgive us of our sins and guarantee us a place in heaven because he demonstrated this through his resurrection. He demonstrated his love by his willingness to lay his life down. He demonstrated his power and his deity by his ability to take it back up again. Is believing this about Jesus a step of faith that you would be willing to make, knowing full well that you cannot and will never fully understand all of the details, but choosing to trust in the heart and the mind of God? If not, ask yourself why and consider asking God to sit with you in your uncertainty. 